Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris with Property Radar, and this is episode 38. Today, we have David Treshrudian and Helen Fowler with Retrofit One. They're a design build firm here in Southern California, but they actually operate all over California, helping uh, commercial owners and multifamily owners look at the advantage of accessory dwelling unit in combination with retrofitting with soft buildings. I never even heard of the term a lot of people talk about uh, ADUs when it comes to single family, but wait till you hear what's possible with commercial. That and much more. Don't miss the show. Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. Today, we have David Tashrudian and Helen Fowler with Retrofit One. And I'm very excited to talk about commercial accessory dwelling units. We've covered residential in a few different ways uh, with Kristen Sir- Christy Sirtwell and then we a little bit with uh, Ward Hannigan. But nobody's talking about commercial. So David and Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how did, how the heck did you get into accessory dwelling units? So, um, I yeah, can, I can, oh, oh, never mind. <laughs> David, you want to yeah, go? I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, I'll defer to Helen because she was really the one in our company that spearheaded this division. So yeah, let us know, Helen. <laughs> so hi again. Uh, thank you so much, Aaron. Um, I'm Helen. And um, as Aaron mentioned, we are with Retrofit One, as well as now a uh, special division just dedicated to ADUs called ADU One, very appropriate. And um, so ADU One came to be uh, similarly to our Retrofit One um, division. ADU One uh, was kind of born right on time of when California passed the state law for um, ADUs, accessory dwelling units, which um, is primarily to increase housing because there is a housing shortage across California. So they really um, expanded it now to multifamily properties, which is really cool because everybody kind of identified ADUs connected with single family residents, you know, typical garage conversions. Um, But what's really awesome for commercial properties and multifamily property owners, they are now allowed to expand their own property, increase the value of their property, add monthly income, and increase the number of units. So ADU1 um, was developed because of the high demand we were getting from our retrofit clients, um, because you can also combine those two together. So we were getting a lot of demand all around to combine the retrofitting requirements with the development of ADUs and really just kind of maximize their money, return on investments, instead of only spending money on retrofits. So with that came ADU1. Excellent. And and some people may not understand what retrofitting, exactly what you do. And I know some of about that only because I go to the Apartment Owners Association events several times a year. And I often see, you know, the lineup of all the vendors. And that's where I was introduced to the first concept of retrofitting. But what does that mean to you? And who is Retrofit1? Yeah, I can answer that part. So the city of Los Angeles had adopted this ordinance requiring uh, buildings who own these buildings that have tuck under and um, sort of carport style parking um, with weak soft story lines and uh, units above to sort of reinforce those parking areas and the, the building in that weak soft story line to ensure that it doesn't collapse in the event of an earthquake. And the city of Los Angeles actually followed in the steps of the city of San Francisco, which adopted a similar ordinance in 2013. So essentially, all these buildings across the, um, uh, the area in Los Angeles, um, and now a couple other cities such as Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, uh, and Pasadena are requiring landlords to retrofit these soft story buildings. And the retrofit typically entails the installation of steel moment frames, steel columns, um, shear walls with uh, new foundations and things like that. Um, and it's really interesting because buildings, uh, soft story buildings have been identified not only by these couple of jurisdictions that I mentioned, but also by the state as a sort of um, uh, peril to life. Uh, and uh, a lot of you might uh, remember that back in the, uh, during the time of the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, I think it was, and the um, Northridge earthquake in 1994 that followed shortly after that. Uh, There were a lot of these soft story buildings that collapsed and there was a a tremendous loss of life. So the state has taken a a vested interest in not only protecting life, but also protecting property and ensuring that in the event of a catastrophic earthquake, these soft story buildings, which I mean, they're they're tons. They're like tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand across the state uh, of California, that, that they don't fail. 
Um, and, and the real economic impact of a failure of all of these soft story um, uh, buildings during the event of an earthquake is that there will not, no longer be enough housing in California, and that'll be uh, detrimental to the economy. So we saw an opportunity to retrofit these buildings. Like I said, it's mandated here in, Cal in um, Los Angeles, and it's been a great business. Um, but slowly but, sh but surely, these buildings are being retrofit, and we sort of dovetailed into um, the ADU space because it's just a, a natural sort of combination of our of our skills and abilities. Well, right let's go back before the ADU law. So before 2017, you know, they were just talking about ADUs. And when somebody was looking at a, a retrofit, um, let's just say, uh, I, I don't know, you, you've got a, an apartment building with the tuck under part, uh, parking. How much would it cost to stabilize that parking? Like how much are we talking about to make parking more <laughs> i have no concept yeah it really depends on the size of the building and the size of um the tuck under parking area so your retrofit can run you anywhere between probably 35 40 thousand dollars at the very low end where you don't even require steel and you can just do it with shear walls all the way up to 550 600 dollars for these large sprawling communities that are just built atop these sticks and posts Right. So it can get very expensive very quick. So before the ADU law, oh. you were just spending that kind of money just to make the, sure the building was secure, but no extra income. You were just making the investment. Exactly. So Helen, did you get really excited when the ADU law came out? <laughs> of course. Um, personally, I, I really liked it because um, in a way, I, I, I kind of felt bad for the property owners that suddenly have this ordinance slapped on them. And especially, especially the owners who maybe they only have one building and this is their source of income to live and it's their livelihood. And suddenly they have to pay $80,000 to retrofit. Um, so I always felt really bad in those situations. Of course, we're here to help and we're, we're a business. But um, whenever I would talk with the property owners, I could hear um, how difficult it would be to have to spend this money, get nothing back. Of course, the safety of their, their residents and tenants and the building. Uh, but it, it was always a tough situation to have to present this um, ordinance. Sometimes we were the first people to tell them that they have to do this. So I was really excited that it can now be combined with something that can get them a return on their investment, make them more money and help the housing sh shortage and um, just the economy and the community with housing at the same time. So it really resonated better with me this time that it's helping in so many ways rather than somebody just spending money for the sake of meeting the requirements. So let's go back up real quick and just in case somebody's landing on this video and they're like, what are they talking about ADU? So accessory dwelling units are just secondary units typically. A lot of times it's thrown around a lot more in the residential space where it can look like a converted garage, which is a junior accessory dwelling unit. It can be attached and share a wall. It can be a completely separate structure. And by law, the state came down and said, no more games, local zoning, you're out. By right, you in California have the right, if you're a landowner, to build an accessory dwelling unit. And it set some guidelines. The setbacks changed. Um, what's some other things? They, they finally updated it to where <laughs> there's a maximum height level. <laughs> uh, early, early legislation had no cap. So technically you have a 10 story ADU in the backyard. They, they fixed that. Um, one of the biggest things is that they made them, you don't have to be an owner occupant, which is great. Um, a lot of cities uh, were also roped in because they were charging really ridiculous um, fees, impact fees. Some cities were charging up to $50,000 in impact fees that had nothing to do with anything Besides, you want to build one, 50 grand. They were mm -hmm. setting lot size limits like, oh, an ADU, sorry, you don't have a 20,000 square foot lot. So the state has continually come down and regulated this. It's been fascinating to watch. But commercial ADUs don't get enough conversation. So can you talk a little bit about the ordinance of what it allows in the state of California for commercial? Yeah, sure. I can um, continue with that. So pretty much uh, kind of a blanketed rule all across California right now for multifamily properties. You're allowed to create up to 25% of your existing number of units, and that counts for attached. So that would be converting um, space within the existing footprint. Uh, garages, if they're already attached, the tuck under parking, as we described, storage rooms, rec rooms, passageways, um, basements. 
So um, any room that's within the existing uh, dwelling, you can create up to 25% um, of your existing number of units. And then a flat rate across the board is up to two detached units. And um, that would be, you could either have, again, a simple conversion of a detached garage, detached carport, even sheds, barns they're allowing, as long as it was an existing accessory structure, or you can do brand new construction, detached um, space permitting, following all of the setback rules and height limits. 25%. That's interesting. Can you convert existing square footage? Like maybe you had a two bedroom, two bath, and you want to split them into one and one. Will that work? Or this has to be converted space? For the ADU law, they're pretty much sticking to um, uh, space that was um, before uninhabited. Hmm. Okay. So some of these fancy buildings who created a lot of amenities that people weren't using a lot, especially now during COVID, the movie rooms, oversized gyms, you can convert those into livable spaces. That's really interesting. Right. If they're within the, the proper zoning. Okay. And I think another really interesting thing about commercial is that you're typically located a very, a very specific part of the rule is that you don't have to replace parking if you're within a half a mile of public transit. That still stands, correct? Yep, exactly. That's fantastic. And a lot of multifamily that almost by the very nature of the type of zoning, cities typically, you're, more oftentimes than not, most commercial, does it fit into that category? Exactly. We have yet to, um, at least with all of the customers and clients I've been working with personally, they're all within hundreds of feet to a bus stop. Is it just bus stop? It's funny. I interviewed Senator Wachowski a couple years ago, and I just come back from the Consumer Electronics Show where the LA Department of Transportation showed off their multimodal stuff that they were doing. And I asked him, do those bikes count? And you know, those scooters, if they're on the corner? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's like, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but I know it's not just bus stop. Um, it's ri ride share systems, anything yeah. else. That's so right. um, that may possibly work. Now, and I don't know if you've experienced this. I don't mean to throw uh, local planning under the bus, but in your experience, are they very forthcoming with that information? <laughs> or will they tell owners like, yeah, you can't do that? I would say right now, luckily, California, because it's a state law, it supersedes any you know local jurisdiction. However, it is still very new. So some cities um, with their own, if they're, they may be in the process of developing their own ordinance. Santa Clarita, for example, their ADU ordinance just passed in January and went into effect over the weekend. So prior to that, they kind of had a gray area for ADU submission, but now they finally um, finalized everything. So they're, of course, within the parameters that they're even able to have wiggle room. So many cities right now, if they don't have their own ordinance, they have to follow California. And if they do have their own ordinance, it's still within um, certain uh, requirements and, and restrictions that California put on. Are you experiencing timelines that uh, the law states uh, the city has or county the building department has 60 days to approve a permit? Are you seeing in the COVID environment that that is holding true? I believe so. I, we, we haven't had any issues so far with, with uh, at least like the first rounds or anything like that. Um, it's been, it's been okay. Okay. Do you see any specific um, building types that it just works so well for? Be yeah. it large apartment buildings or these, you know, these smaller complexes? Any ideas? It definitely works for the tuck under, the, the dingbat style that, um, you know, just has those areas, easy conversion. It's already kind of part of the footprint. Um, I've seen a, a huge benefit for duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, because they can almost dump double their, their unit count. And typically those um, buildings, because they're smaller, they have extra lot and land, you know, that, that has been just um, empty space. So they've been able to really capitalize on the, the detached um, units. Uh, we've seen some to, for, I mean, really, yeah, any buildings, duplexes, triplexes, um, fourplexes, all the way up to buildings that have, you know, larger storage rooms that they want to convert, tuck under maybe around the entire perimeter um, that can use that. And because they have extra parking lot or the street is okay for parking. So it, we really haven't, encountered any buildings where it, it 
wouldn't unless they never had parking to begin with and there's no existing um, extra lot or land. Yeah, I have a, I created this word called the cram lord. Don't be a cram lord. So I, I was very excited to talk to you because of the design side, the livability um, in some cities where you're working, the concept of, you know, you make the building a little bit less livable. I think of some parts of LA where parking is already just a trauma, <laughs> trying to find it. And then you get rid of existing parking and you make a really terrible living experience for the tenants and it actually could impact the value of your property. Um, is though are those conversations you're having to have with some building owners that see the opportunity, but it's just not the right opportunity for where they're at? Absolutely, absolutely. And we, I, I've discussed um, numerous times with the property owners if they're building, if it's if it, would, if it would be worth it with them or create more of a headache or issue. Especially, we definitely understand that um, taking away parking or providing a unit without parking may, if, if for them it's harder to fill then they know that specific building might not be right for them. However, there's other buildings that if they know most of their tenants are using bikes, using public transportation, a, a high walkability score, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. Nor do the, the owners have to use all of their parking. And they can also take advantage of um, stuff we've designed, two-story structures. If they have kind of like an, a, a parking lot or even just a row of parking, following setback rules, we can build a two-story structure that preserves parking underneath and has units on top. So we have many design ways to either preserve their parking, not use up all the, the spaces if they you know don't want to, um, just convert storage areas, or some configuration that could help for what's best for that specific property. Um, I, lo I love that. Um, so an investor contacted me about a triplex he owned and what, and it was on a rather large lot. And what he decided to do is add three um, garage units with ADUs on top. Um, and just so you know, for the sake of public records, this is a triplex plus three ADUs. Mm -hmm. He rented the garages out to the different owners. It didn't matter out of the six, you just paid extra for the garage. I thought that was so brilliant. He was able to add quality of life and not get rid of parking. I just thought that was really great. Um, <laughs> I love the concept of in public record um, looking at the zoning. So something already zoned like R3 or LA R3, so triplex. And right now there's still only a single family. Somebody's never come in and done highest and best use. So I've got investors specifically looking for that and then adding the ADUs on top of adding two additional units. So going from a single family home to adding five additional units in markets like this, where it's hard to maybe find a deal, you create it. That's really cool. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I was on the, I was showing David that yesterday, sort of some fun ways to look at the public records and you just happen to be doing the commercial, <laughs> the commercial building right next door to the lot that I pulled up. That was so funny. So are there the any, one on Clark? Yes. Isn't that weird? What a small world. Uh -huh. yeah. you, in on the apartment owners association, you had one. You had two projects specifically. I would love to bring up. One was the the C shaped building, where on I think it was there's two streets on either side of the building, and there was tuck under parking on either side of the street. And I think what was so brilliant about that project is not only did you create two brand new two bedroom. I, two bedroom, one bath, I believe, but there was a courtyard in the center that you replaced the parking on site, which I thought was so great. Um, and then the whole retrofitting angle. So typically that, that building owner would have to spend what, 150 grand to fix the undertuck parking. Is that fair? Maybe not that much, maybe not that much, but probably close to $70,000 to okay. do the retrofit in both the front and in the back. How much did it cost to um, convert those? Do you have any rough estimate? So I think, top project? Yeah, the two units. I think the two units there is a total of like, I want to say 1,100 square feet. And we came in a little bit over 300. And in that neighborhood, the doors, each door was selling for about 275. So, you know, yeah, exactly. They're paying $150 for the door. And, you know, in, instantly the equity goes up per door by 250 to two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, so it's like a no-brainer, basically. In your experience, when building owners are also tackling these kind of large projects, are they also doing other maintenance on the building at the same time? A lot of times, we're upgrading the sewer lines uh, because we'll run a camera and we'll show the. Uh, we're, we're licensed plumbers, 
So we do a lot of the plumbing work. Uh, we'll either repipe the entire building for the for the um, for the owner because they'll realize like, hey, you know, I'm doing this invasive construction. They're putting in this great new product called PEX, and uh, it's solving all the problems they're having with uh, pinhole leaks in their copper. So rather than just having two units that are um, that are sort of insulated from future failures by copper, they decide to repipe the whole building. And then we'll run a camera to find the, the existing sewer line so we can tie in the new sewer to that. And they'll find that it's, um, it's cracked in four or five different places. So rather than waiting for the entire sewer line to collapse, we'll just do a liner and, um, and we'll upgrade the sewer line for another 50 to 75 years. Wow. That's, I, lots of value add. And, a lot of value add. and real briefly, let's talk about if there's money available. Early on in retrofitting, I heard that there was money and grants available for building owners because the city was very worried if there was a massive earthquake that they would be short a lot of inventory. Is that money still around? I wish. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not, not, not that we've seen. Okay. Um, quite frankly, no. Well, and I, is the ordinance really at the city level? You mentioned state and then local. Um, on your website, I saw that there were several areas specifically you have ordinances. So the city can have their own ordinance? Yes. So it, it's at the uh, city level now, at the municipality level. And there, there are several municipalities. Like I'm saying, San Francisco is really the pioneer of uh, the soft story retrofit requirements. And then it's sort of migrated its way down to Los Angeles. Um, I think in San Francisco, there are maybe 3,000 buildings subject to the ordinance. Los Angeles is closer to 12. Santa Monica maybe had 2,000. Um, the city of West Hollywood and, um, and Beverly Hills, maybe 800 each, 500 in Pasadena. Now other cities uh, like such as Oakland and I think uh, Mountain View is looking at it. They're sort of adopting the ordinance as well, but it's an issue that's uh, that sort of brought has been brought to the attention to legislatures legislators statewide. So there's a provision in the government code that states that these kind of buildings are a um, a hazard to self to to um, health and safety. I can't recall what it is off the top of my head, but it's there in the government code. And there was a um, a congressman down here out of Burbank who tried to get the state to prepare a statewide inventory of soft story buildings to so that the local municipalities can take a look at the at an ordinance but that was shot down because i think it was something like a an on i can't rec recall why it, it wasn't signed by governor brown in 2018 i think it reached his desk but he refused uh, he didn't sign it um it might be coming back again but it's it's definitely on people's minds on, on the minds of the, the the legislature because they want to make sure in the event of a catastrophic earthquake we don't run out of housing for people because there I would I would imagine there are millions of people living in these kind of units. Not only that, buildings you, support, you know, depending on who you talk to, one point five to three million you know units. So yeah, the last thing we need is existing units to disappear and make the problem worse. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. So, it would have a you know it's sort of a domino effect. Right. If you can't have people, if people can't live in California, they're not going to be able to work in California. If you can't work in California, the state's GDP, by definition, is going to you know, decline. It's going to be very difficult to get us back on our feet after the event of an earthquake if people can't live and work. I always uh, encourage real estate investors to get very local, go to the municipality, check the building department, check with your utility. Sometimes if you're doing upgrades, um, they will have, sometimes they get these grants from national or the state that they have to spend. My favorite was when retrofitting was around, I called AOA and I, I was like, do you know about um, this insulation program that the LADWP has where they're just giving away commercial insulation. They just have to spend the money and they're having a hard time. So while you're doing a retrofit, you can re-insulate your building and then tap into the utility to get uh, rebates on things like windows or air conditioners or things like that. And he's like, nope, didn't know about it. <laughs> so you never know when those kind of resources change. Um, so that's why I was asking about the retrofit money. And since it is a local ordinance, if these ordinances come with money sometimes, <laughs> doesn't sound like that's happening, especially with COVID. No, definitely. But there is there are um, grants available for single family homes that want to retrofit their foundations. And that's through the earthquake brace and bolt program. Um, I've personally taken advantage at my house and the last couple of earthquakes. I really haven't felt much, you know, because my foundation is now bolted to the ground. And uh, it's a really interesting process. It um, it'll save you a lot of money in the, in the long run in case there is an earthquake because it prevents your essentially your structure from sliding off the foundation. 
Oh wow! I did. I've never. I've heard of yeah. the, the Bolt program, but I didn't know it came with money. That's interesting. Where do you even up, find up that? Thousand dollars for single family owners. How much does it cost to get it done? The average, I would say, anywhere between six to ten thousand, depending on the size of the property. Wow! So you can get you know up to fifty percent back, which is really helpful. It is very helpful. And then also you could probably get a discount on insurance, I would think. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah a, lot of our, a lot of our earthquake retrofit customers are doing it in order to get a discount on their insurance. But not only that, you know, a lot of people are, are forced to retrofit their buildings, um, soft story buildings, because of um, bank requirements. So if they're going through a refinance, the lender is going to want you to, refi- to retrofit your building in order to ensure that their collateral is still around, you know, in the event of an earthquake. Interesting. So rather than, rather than doing that, when you're doing a re- rather than retrofitting, when you're refinancing, we've got a client right now, just pur- purchased a set of buildings. They're, they have to, to retrofit these buildings in order to comply with the terms of their loan. But instead of doing that, he's just creating new units. He's uh, putting the ADUs in and retrofitting at the same time. That's amazing. I had no idea. So you have lenders saying, we're going to go ahead and pass until you do the retrofit. Yes. Yeah, very yes. often. Very often. Wow. More so now. Yeah, it's, it's a it, more so now. Are you getting a sense that these landlords are just done and they're leaving, or they want to take on this retrofit, or are they looking to sell? Like, how are they feeling about all this? The majority are doing it. You know, okay. because they, they want to keep it's still worth it to do the retrofit. It's a it's a they pay for it once, but then they still, of course, you know, continue to get the the income from their income property. So the majority of our clients and customers and, and everybody else, they're, they're doing the retrofitting. Um, every now and then, there is somebody who does have to sell their building. And that's what I personally hate when that happens. So I really try to connect them with every single financial resource I can to help them. Um, or we do, of course, with, with whatever is in our power to help. So they don't have to sell something that's their only income, you know, based on this. But the majority are doing it. And now we, we notice... Um, from all of those categories, the ones who were able to do it, the ones who had to sell, the ones who did financing are jumping on board with the ADUs because it's almost like that's the the answer they were looking for. If I'm going to spend this money, how can I do it in a way where I at least get something in return and it doesn't just hurt me in, in so many ways? I bet you get this question a lot. If I have a building that's currently under rent control, will the accessory dwelling units fall under the rent control or because of the new certificate of occupancy, I can charge market rents? So from my understanding... I can answer that. Sure. Go go for it, David. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Thanks. So, um, you know, I I would just like to start off with a caveat that I would, um, you know, engage uh, your own legal counsel to give you an opinion. But our understanding and our experience thus far has been that these are new units. Right, and these new units are exempted from uh, Costa Hawkins and the local municipalities' uh, rent control requirements uh, for I think it's the, the 15 years that you have for a new construction. So it falls within that. But but again, I would just you know encourage um, somebody who's looking at doing this to 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 get legal advice from uh, qualified counsel on that. That could really help a lot of landlords who have maybe been very uh, gracious or silly and not raising rents. <laughs> I fall under that category because I enjoy my tenants and I like them to stay a really long time. I'm not very aggressive on that front, but where maybe they've, they're locked in and they're a little scared and they've got, they're looking at this huge bill. This is such a neat way to increase income if you have to do those kind of things. So I, I hope we're right. That is my understanding as well, that you do not have to chart. It's not under the rent control, but I like that. Speak with your attorney. It's a very good idea. Yes. yes. And it is, um, it's a little different for a single family too, because um, rent control doesn't, uh, you know, count for, for single family residences. But if they were to add ADUs, that could then make them a multifamily property. They may be subject to um, rent control there that they weren't prior. Interesting. I didn't think so it's also something like David mentioned. Every, I think every person needs to double check and do their own due diligence to make sure because there is um, also there's, you know, state rent control, especially as local rent control. So there's some differences there with how it's affected. Good point. Please go down to the local level and do your homework. Uh, When it comes to builder code for commercial, when you're converting these spaces, uh, 
Any insights on things like solar sprinkler systems? Are there any surprises that you've found that people aren't expecting? Yes. So there is, um, with the Title 24, uh, newly constructed detached units um, do have to have solar. You can either put the solar on the new unit or on the primary dwelling. It's up to the owner, but they will be subjected to those energy efficiency standards. And that is required for newly constructed detached units. So you're telling me if I figure out a way to attach a wall, I may not have to have solar? Possibly, possibly. We would have to see kind of um, how rigid and detailed they are with what they consider, <laughs> you know, detached or not. But uh, yeah, but a, a, de- a detached unit, like Helen is saying, is going to have to be at least six, sometimes 10 feet away from the existing structure. Mm-hmm. So you probably won't be able to get away with that. All right. I'm just trying to be creative, <laughs> our crew. And I'm also trying to think in the data that we have access to how to spot these things. Um, I called the chief appraiser for Riverside County asking how they were um, adding these in the realm of public records. And they are, but it's not getting done correctly countywide, at least in Riverside County. So I think we're a ways away from not communicating with people that might have these. So how do we how do we suss that out? I don't know. but. Um, Do you have any favorite cities that you really enjoy because it's just so easy to do these and they're really excited about these? Los Angeles. Really? The reason I like Los Angeles is because Los Angeles is very gracious in the amount, in the square footage rather, of the detached ADUs that they're allowing. So the state minimum is anywhere between 800 and 850 square feet that the municipality has to allow. Uh, Some municipalities are very stingy and they'll only allow you the state minimum. But the city of Los Angeles, again, has been very gracious to property owners and is allowing a full 1,200 square feet. So you could add up to two 1,200 square foot detached units on your property. That's like a 2,400 square foot house, essentially. It's cut in half, Um, three bedroom, two bath, very spacious. Um, And in most parts of the city, you're commanding $3,000 a month rent for that unit. On each? Very nice. Each? on, On each, yeah, 1,200 square feet, three bedrooms, two baths. Can you imagine? Yeah, well, if more. If not more. Santa Monica, tiny little studios can be $2,000 a month. It's just, oh, man, rents are very crazy these days. But the, what a what a cool strategy, and I'm so glad we're covering this in, in a unique way. Uh, one of the other, when I watched your AOA presentation, one of the projects I absolutely loved was the concept of the two-story ADU. And the height limitation in the law is 16 feet high, correct? So, yes. yeah, you're like, do I build a really short garage? Like, how do I do that? And I'll let you take it over. That particular project was really neat. And how you got around that? Yeah, the, the engineering is, is uh, pretty novel on that. So the idea is that the um, the 16 foot height limit is measured within five feet, is measured from the grade within five feet from the structure. So you can actually excavate portions of the building, uh, rather portions of the lot in order to accommodate for a taller building. So if you can get down like a foot and a half or two, that's enough to provide you um, with uh, you know an extra foot or two to get a, a taller ceiling, for example, on the second floor. So the, the parking requirement is that you only have to have seven feet uh, head clearance in the, in the parking lot, that's fine. You have to have a minimum of seven, six, uh, typically in the living, uh, in the dwelling area. So with that additional foot uh, that you excavate, foot and a half that you excavate, you've got plenty more room um, up in the living area to, to give it a nice, bright, open and airy feel. That is so great. <laughs> That's yeah. yeah, it's great. Very novel way to approach it. And uh, what's the minimum square footage you, how do I ask this question? The minimum square footage you need to build something of substance. I, I don't know how to ask it. An efficiency unit, believe it or not, is 150 square feet. Some jurisdictions have a have a different maximum. Helen will, will, will tell me uh, told me that recently that, that the city of Santa Monica requires at least 220 square feet. But man, if you can get away with 150 square feet with a hot plate and a place to prepare your food, and I think an area for a small fridge. And uh, bathroom facilities, you are good to rent. Wow. So you could almost mm-hmm. turn every garage into its own efficiency unit underneath <laughs> if you have enough <laughs> <Yeah>. units. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, let's let's say a, a garage. I mean, typical parking spots right now are, um, I think, eight eight feet minimum by eighteen feet in depth. But a lot of times you see them eight feet by twenty. So if you got an eight foot by twenty spot and there's two spots right next to each other, technically you could put two two tiny micro units in there. Hey, listen, I lived in New York City. You don't have to tell me twice. People will rent that all day long. Yeah, Just have to say, similar to, to Manhattan closets. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sort of thinking out loud here. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off here. But I'm sort of thinking out loud. Let's say, for example, this, the state starts providing grants to alleviate the, homeless pop, the homelessness problem that we're having all over the place. You know, you can just make a ton of these micro units in these tuck under parking spots of people's buildings. And if, this, if, the, if the city is giving out $800,000 a month in grants to house, uh, you know, the previously homeless, that's amazing. I mean, you can get like, I don't know, 10 units in your, in your building at 150 square feet of pop and add 10,000 bucks a month to your rent roll. I mean, that's unheard of. Have you heard any cities doing some variants for this very thing that we're talking about? Now, I know there's going to be some government strings attached, like if you take money or they do a variance for you, you're going to get something recorded. But um, do you know of any cities saying, yeah, if you're willing to build affordable units, you can go small and we'll let you build more? They're similarly, um, maybe maybe they encompass what you're what you're describing. There actually are a lot of um, grants and programs right now. Maybe not specifically to uh, funding for um, for homelessness and housing, but there are if you make um, enough units for the low income population, uh, there are some programs and grants there. I know San Diego may have some and some cities up north. Uh, I forgot if it was Oakland or Alameda or something like that. But there are some funding and programs right now if you do um, create units for low income as well as I believe even middle income to low income, there's some funding. And I know I, I was helping um, a very nice lady right now in San Diego. She rents all of her properties to um, veterans, section eight, wounded uh, warriors, things like that. So I've been uh, trying to help her link to programs that can help fund her ADUs because she's doing so much for her community. So there are, are some, if anybody needs to, to talk to us, I'm happy to help try to connect with any possible funding out there that can help the community. Absolutely. I love the creativity and it's often something I like to tell people is don't rule out the nonprofit space. So a lot of investors don't always live in the county where they own property. Go to the county two on one and start asking for those kind of programs, housing programs, and call the nonprofits and say, "Are you getting creative? What kind of funding is available?" Because believe me, the nonprofit space is on it. They're doing some research. They're starting more housing programs. Um, the two on one has data in almost every county in California. If it's like Riverside County, housing for the last five years that I've been looking at the data is always housing related people needing help right. with rent and stuff like that. So absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, hopefully if there's enough push, they'll create programs and funding for it as the ADUs continue to roll out. In residential, I know it's a much more popular conversation. It doesn't have to be stick built. So uh, manufactured housing and some cities are even allowing tiny homes. Does that cross over into commercial as well? Yes. I believe they allow um, mobile tiny homes, they're called. Uh, there's, there's, of course, its own restrictions with what they look like, sizing, stuff like that. Um, they can't have their own power just to leave. Certain stuff has to be hidden underneath. But that is one of the categories that they're allowed in many areas. So if you landowners or commercial owners that have to do a major retrofit, maybe you can bring some of these units online and not completely be without income while you're doing some big retrofits too. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, I, I really, I really like the manufactured space. Um, yeah. we, we've got a manufactured. Yeah, we, we work with a partner, Abodehu, and what they're doing is they are manufacturing these um, 600 square foot ADUs, and we're just doing the site work and plopping them on people's land uh, property, and that's done in like a month. You know, it's very quick in and out. Wow, that is fast. Yeah. And what do these things look yes. like? 600 square feet. That's a nice size. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, you can, you can go check out their website. I think it's abodeu.com and you can take a look at, um, you know, the sizing, the, um, the styling. It, it, they're, they're just fantastic. And it's, and it's quick and easy in and out. And you have a unit. And you can put these onto the commercial spaces as well. 
I definitely think the plant uh, manufactured housing is going to have its heyday. We just don't have enough skilled labor out here. <laughs> have you guys been facing a lot of increases in labor costs and su- supply chain? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, like you wouldn't believe. I, yeah. build, so I, I know. We pay, we pay our guys well, too. So it's like it, it starts to add up. Well, so if you want to keep them, right? Uh, so you got to stay competitive yes. You're in a hot market. My goodness. I think lumber recently quadrupled. So that's been a lot. Steel has gone up maybe five to 7%. Everything has gone up, especially in 2021, especially after COVID. It's been, um, it's, it's been a lot. Okay. How are you guys identifying your perfect customer that, I mean, you said that some of them don't even know about the retrofit. How are you going about connecting with them? Luckily, right now, um, we're reaching out to all of our existing uh, clientele for the retrofitting, spreading the word, um, you know, any which way we can, webinars, newsletters, just calling them to to inform them if they have not heard um, yet. So we've been doing it that way, um, as well as some people have organically been uh, finding out about it. We've been writing some articles as well for certain publications. Um, I We do a lot of social media reach, LinkedIn posts, Facebook, everything we can to really market um, the, the entire uh, new, you know, ordinance and law, as well as just reaching out to as many of our own um, in-house clients that we already have. So we're, we're doing pretty much everything possible to help spread the word and see who wants to um, you know, jump in on this opportunity. Do you guys have like the ideal project that's just so easy and you know you're going to knock their socks off? I do. Yeah, it's it's going to be a fourplex with a garage and uh, a backyard with enough room to put two new units. And you take your fourplex and turn it into a seven-unit apartment building. Beautiful. <laughs> that's awesome. I just yeah. Curious, does yeah. There have to be a minimum square footage on that. Uh, the lot that you like to see. Um, any minimum or maximums for the lot there are of course again setback rules has to be for detached and there's also um certain rear setback rules it can't take up you know the entire space of of the the rear property but we always anything we propose to our clients we've already done our research we know the rules we know the setbacks are requirements so we only propose feasible units we're not going to promise them a 10-story attached thing that then suddenly gets rejected. So it, once once they're engaged with us and we're, we're proposing something, we only propose what's feasible and what's allowed by the state and their specific jurisdiction. Um, who is your perfect customer? Is it the mom and pops or is it somebody who owns 50 apartment buildings all over Los Angeles? Both. We have, I would say it's equal between all of them, whoever wants to do this. If their property has the the room, the space, the minimums, um, we've been getting uh, huge um, outreach from 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 both. What's been the tenants' response as you're building these? Are they pretty receptive to it? Um, either way. So we've got to provide the tenants notice um, in Los Angeles, at least under a tenant habitability program or plan, rather. Uh, in order to give them an opportunity to object and really no one has. So I would say it's, um, it's either neutral or positive. Okay. Well, that, so yeah, they're not mining and it's not too disruptive. How, how long is the process typically taking right now? Uh, construction will take you about six to eight months, depending on whether it's, um, attached or detached. If it's detached, you know, we're building from the ground up. It's going to take a little bit longer. Uh, but if it's an attached unit in a, in a tucked under spot, you know, we're in and out in like uh, four to six months. Very quick. Interesting. Yeah. That is very disruptive for that lo- amount of time if you're a tenant, but any, uh, any tips on how to make them not cranky? Luckily, Be polite with- and clean, right? <laughs> no, really. And luckily um, with our team specifically, we have a, a wonderful, all of our staff um, are very hands-on we handle tenant communication and notices the entire way through. So that's also something the property owner doesn't have to worry about complaints being directed to them or just questions about the construction. Somebody in our office is available um, at all times, you know, and if it's after hours or anything, we get back to you right away. So we handle all tenant communication and notices. 
updating on, you know, whatever phase of construction we're on, how long left, whatever it is, you know, we, we always make sure to keep our communication open during the entire process. Like David mentioned, we're always very nice. We absolutely understand that it could be a nuisance during the construction process and the noise. Um, I, I single-handedly helped, um, a lady going through some health conditions, as well as teaching a class, chemistry class, high school chemistry at 7 a.m. I helped find her a parking spot where she can move her car to every day during the process of construction, um, just so she could, you know, be comfortable, not have to walk and still get back to her class. So we, we'll, we'll do whatever is needed. And of course, within reason, we will do it to help the tenants during the, those construction phases. Yeah. And also sort of piggyback on what Helen is saying, you know, we've got a 4,000 square foot office here in Tarzana with maybe 20 people. And also, you know, it's like pan around here a little bit. And this is uh, one portion of our office and we're dedicated to customer service here. I think that's one of our strong suits that we ensure that, um, you know, obviously the client is number one and the client's client, which is the tenant is uh, essentially number two. So we're always working to ensure um, you know, appropriate um, communication, timely communication. And like I said, on the job, cleanliness. We want to leave the job clean every evening, uh, uh, free of debris and safe. So I don't think, I think people see that and appreciate it. And that's why, uh, you know, we don't get much pushback. All right. Well, this is the data-driven real estate show. So it's, we've come to that part of the show where we have to focus on data. <laughs> um, I, you know, some of my favorite ways to look at these, I've always mentioned, are the upzoning opportunities. If you're in the community and you know upzoning is coming and you're there first, um, you know, as we've talked about the different uh, ways to build these, hopefully it will trigger things. But now I had never even understood the term um, soft, soft building. I didn't even know what that was until you and I started talking and I saw your presentation at AOA. And that's not in the realm of public records necessarily. So you may not only you may not know that unless you're driving around and really spot what's really appropriate. So I have investors that are doing um, using property radar to zoom out and then zoom in and see where the project is located, if there's enough room in the back, or where you know they might be able to replace parking for good tenant access and livability. Um, that kind of stuff. So some of it's a little hard. Uh, another way I like to do it is square footage of lot. And then you try to calculate a way to say, I only want the main building to be this much square footage and it's this many stories and I want the lot to be this size. It's just a cheating way to be able to zoom in uh, as much mm -hmm. as possible and start looking at those opportunities. And then you can zoom in and actually look at the map. It's pretty nerdy. Um, what other data? Yeah, a couple of things. Yeah, I know exactly where you're going with this. Um, so the city of Los Angeles is actually, and, and I think city of uh, San Francisco and Oakland and those cities that do have an ordinance have um, published addresses of these soft story buildings. So you could probably take those addresses and import them into your property radar system to give a new attribute to your um, data sets. Wow, that is amazing. That's fantastic. And, and all you have to do is find the address and then add it to a list if it meets the criteria. And if it's owned by mom and pops, there's a great chance that we'll have phone numbers and emails, which is awesome. So you can contact them directly uh, in whatever way is appropriate. So um, I love overlaying demographic data. That's definitely my favorite. If you know the, the age of the, the building owner, maybe you can do some creative financing stuff. Maybe they own a whole portfolio and you figure out how to do some really creative stuff. Could be a lot of fun. Sure. What other data do you guys use in, in your business that uh, people might be interested in? How are you out there beating the competition? So that's a trade secret. <laughs> <I figured. laughs> but no, no, it's okay. Uh, so aside from that, like, you know, what we learned early on is that we can take, uh, we can take the um, information that's provided by the state and the city rather on these uh, vulnerable buildings and sort of backwards engineer from those uh, addresses, um, people's contact information, you know, their, their names, their phone numbers, their addresses. Uh, we use property radar as well um, to get that kind of uh, information. So, so we've just taken whatever's out there in the public domain and um, incorporated it into our marketing. And we've got a small uh, telemarketing team that takes all that information and just calls people up all day and uh, offers them, um, you know, a, a bid. Well, you're, you're and, and now, now that we're doing the ADU stuff, we're gonna we're gonna, you know, continue on using you guys' data to find um, opportunities for 
uh, landlords that may not have realized that they could take advantage of this rule. I got to tell you, I, I don't think the word is out. I really don't. I'm still surprised how many investors are like, what? This I can do this? <laughs> it's like Christmas every day. Uh, yeah. And it's exciting to hear that you like to use the phone. So the phone is not dead in 2021. Oh, no. Oh, no. The phone is great. Do you like direct mail or are there any other channels that have been really successful for you guys? Pretty much everything. I mean, we're, we're utilizing old school techniques of just phone and giving calls. So again, social media has been big, especially for the ADU um, side of it, too. Uh, wh- whatever we can, you know, writing articles. Just getting those out there too. We we wrote some. I think even early in, um, I think we wrote it last year. It was published maybe December or January, and that was just about retrofitting and ADUs to just slowly get the words. And then we get um, organic phone calls coming in because they they read the story, they read the article. Isn't that funny. So w- whatever we can, and, and we're we're very fortunate to have um, a huge network right now of lots of. Um, clientele related to commercial real estate. They have maybe their own portfolio as well as they work with clients who have others. Whatever you know, we can with just networking alone as well has been very helpful. Well, I have yeah, a direct mail works. Oh, you do? Works. Okay. Yeah. Do you do a lot of work whenever you're in the neighborhood and you're already doing a project? Do you do anything around? Um, maybe you get a lot of questions from people being like, what are you doing? Yeah. So we, we put signs on our building. Mm-hmm. And that on the buildings that we're working on, and that gets a lot of traffic, mm-hmm. but no, no canvassing, no canvassing. Well, it's hard because to- the, the apartment owner doesn't live next door. Right, right. I was going to say the commercial owner doesn't necessarily live there. The property manager might not. Just like I just can't be bothered. <laughs> They're not going to necessarily pass that on. They don't care. So it's really smart to be able to do some research and find out where the actual owner lives. That's great. Interesting. Well, your your presentation at the Apartment Owners Association, I on the show notes, I definitely will link that. It is well worth the hour that you will spend listening. Uh, you have just such great pictures and case studies, and that's why I originally reached out to you. I'm going to redo the ADU quick video on how to find the opportunities in the data and the different ways to do that, and I just really appreciate it. It was really good. Awesome. And um, if they want to find out more information about uh, retrofit and ADUs, where should they be going? They can go to our website, apartmentadu.com, or give us a call, 1-866-NEW-ADU-1. We'll always be available. You can hit the contact us through Apartment ADU. And we're also going to start doing, uh, David and myself will be doing live weekly uh, seminars with Q&A every week. They can register on apartmentadu.com register and every week can um, have a live Q&A session with both of us to discuss anything ADU specific property questions or call us again 866 new ADU1 I'm going to have to introduce you to somebody when we get off the air uh, hopefully you guys are already very involved in the National Association of Property Management I I know it's I've taught at their associations before but this is just too cool not to share so awesome <laughs> sure all right, guys. Well, thank you so much. I will make sure to put all those links in the show notes. And thanks for being here. Of course. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that, join the community, and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.